I'm Chandra Jenkins, Executive Director of the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. We are proud to sponsor this very special series from Add Passion and Stir that focuses on the contributions of young adults fighting to end childhood hunger here in the United States. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir, Washington, D.C. today. There's four of us at the table. My sister, Debbie Shore, is here. Deb, thanks for being back. Co-founder of Share Our Strength. Wouldn't miss it. There's treats on the table. Uh, and Maria Rose Belding is here. Uh, what do you call it? A rising junior at American University? That is correct. Uh, and the co-founder of an amazing organization, which has an acronym uh, of MEANS, but really stands for Matching Excess and Need for Stability. So Super excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Um, and Chef David Gauss, who's been a longtime supporter of Share Our Strength and is known to many folks around this country from the Travel Channel and American Grilled also has two great restaurants here, at least two, um, called uh, Bayou Bakery Coffee uh, Bar and Eatery. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're now my favorite guest of all these shows because you brought some great treats. Can never come empty-handed. No, I like that philosophy. Uh, Thanks for being here. Tell us what you brought. Oh, well, we have just a little assortment of uh, some of our pastries that we do at Little B, uh, one of which kind of most notable is the everything croissant, um, kind of traditional everything spices on the outside, and we stuff it with a chive cream cheese. We also have a golden raisin and pecan uh, scone, our savory scone, which is one of our signatures, our cornbread, which we have ground for us, the meal out at Mount Vernon at the George Washington Grits Mill. Uh, then we have a classic pan au chocolat, a cookie of sorts, looks like maybe a salted peanut butter. And then I'm not sure what the uh, coffee cake of the day is, but that's our coffee cake. Beautiful. <laughs> well, I think the... Um uh, this is an everything croissant, you yes. call it, with all the poppy seeds and sesame seeds yes. on it. I think that yes. has my name on it. It's got the chive cream cheese inside. Well. This is really... For those like, that mix breakfast, right? This is breakfast, lunch, and dinner for Billy Shore. This is, this, this, is, is, this is basically what I eat three this times This is what he day. eats all day long. Like breakfast. <laughs> we're happy. Um, Thank you for you bringing us. Well, we're beautiful. very excited to have both of you. David, I want to know how you became a chef. You know, I came back from going to school in Colorado and uh, realized that I, I was not all for me. Came back to my hometown of New Orleans and um, tried to get my head on straight, decided to go to culinary school and that was really being pushed by my grandmother and my aunt, uh, my Aunt Boo being uh, sort of the, the, the culinary guru of the family, uh, still lives in Abbeville, Louisiana, where most folks still speak French, um, or I should say Cajun, it's not, you know, traditional French. And she, you know, pushed me to sort of, you know, learn a trade and so I went to culinary school in New Orleans, got my first... Which, which one? Which one? Uh, New Orleans culinary. Okay. Got my first... Uh, paying gig out of school at the Windsor Court Hotel. Um, I actually applied in the kitchen and not in the pastry department, and they weren't hiring. So I'll sort of summarize, but long story short, I, I, I wanted to work at the Windsor Court, you know, come hell or yeah, high water. That's where you wanted to be. That's it. So I basically said, what else you got? Um, interviewed with the executive master, uh, German master pastry chef a couple times, then finally got a gig uh, to to go into the pastry department. So okay. chef was accidental and pastry was Definitely, accidental yes. in a way. Yes. Um, I mean, this won't surprise you because you're in the industry, but the number of chefs that we've talked to who were in one way or another accidental, right? They sure. didn't start out to become chefs. Sure. But also the number who were influenced by their grandmother in oh, particular, yeah. or their, in your case, your Aunt Boo, is Aunt Boo, it? Janice Bourgeois, yeah. yep. Who, Aunt who, Boo. Was a, who was a cook or? Oh, yeah. I mean, she's still cooking today. I mean, never a professional, but uh, has been cooking all her life. Uh, she's the and one you that were gave standing me... there at her elbow. And... Well, it's funny because, you know, she. I have two first cousins, you know, two girls, um, her daughters. Um, 
who really had no interest in, in cooking. So, you know, she was always shooing them out of the kitchen. You know, they weren't allowed to kind of come in and even make themselves a sandwich. It was like she would feed you. So unlike my house where mom was like, what's wrong with your arms, you know, and your legs? Like, get up and, you know, make yourself something else. Right. So, but I started asking her questions when I would come visit her uh, in Abbeville, which is 20 minutes west of uh, Lafayette. And, um, you know, I, I guess I asked the right questions and she sort of, and she's also my godmother and I don't know, she, she gifted me my first cast iron Dutch oven and taught me how to make my first roux and the rest. She wasn't a baker. Sounds like. No, definitely right. not. No, right. no. I mean, all the, all the hunters in that area drop off all their ducks at the end of the year and she makes gumbo and I mean, she's, she's mad. I mean, people just hire her to come along to trips. Sounds and amazing. Just think she cooks. We want her on the show. Oh, she's great. She uh, sounds so great. <laughs> one last question before I turn to Maria Rose. Yeah. Taught you how to bake your first roux. I should know this, but what is a roux? A uh, roux is fat and flour. That's what I call it. Okay. Butter, butter and flour. You don't know what a roux is? Um, yeah. In fact, it's the vanity plates on my Harley. It's the name of my yellow lab. Uh, you know, uh, roux is uh, is is everything. So, so um, Holy Trinity and roux are sort of the two foundations for all Louisiana <laughs> cuisine. And in, in in Louisiana, we do oil and flour. Uh, the French version uh, would be more butter and flour. Yeah, but like yeah. that's kind of why I say fat and flour because it depends on which one you decide to use. In making gumbos, uh, the butter tends to break. And uh, oil tends to be more stable. Plus, the Cajuns weren't using butter because that was a very expensive commodity. Um, but they were using, you know, they could get a hold of some kind mm-hmm. of rendered fat or oil or something. Um, I don't know if it was alligator oil or rendered fat off of some kind of swamp animal or creature. Who knows? But they were able to make roux and make their gumbos and, and cool. everything else. Yeah. So Now I know. Maria Rose Belding, you've been thinking about food for a long time also, but in a kind of a different way. I, I don't know if it was back to sixth grade or when you were six years old. I saw the number six somewhere attached to your story where I think you were involved with your church doing some work at a food kitchen or something. Tell us about um, how you started to think about food and what you've done with it. I I spent a lot of time growing up volunteering. I really wanted to be a doctor, and my parents really wanted me out of the house. <laughs> I love them dearly. And they would park me in front of every volunteer opportunity they could find. This is in Iowa? This is in Iowa. This is in Pella, Iowa. And the one that kind of stuck was the soup kitchen that was housed in the church that I grew up in. And how old were you then? Started volunteering when I want to say was six, five or six. I was pretty young. By the time I was, you know, 12, 13, I was really determined to be a physician and doing a lot of reading on things like how do we help people in kidney failure? How do we help people who are dealing with congestive heart problems? How do we address that through diet? So I was doing all this reading and then volunteering at the food pantry and seeing that we were giving people in kidney failure ramen noodles, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. And that was happening all the time. We weren't doing that because we didn't understand that that was a bad idea. They weren't eating that because they didn't understand it was a bad idea. They were eating that because... The option was what we had in the food pantry or no food at all. And those were two really, really bad options. Meanwhile, the grocery store that's a less than a mile away from this church was throwing out food. Healthy food. Healthy food. Healthy food. We had all this amazing fresh produce. I'm from essentially a farming community in a farming state. There's so much amazing fresh food around. And it wasn't possible for us to communicate effectively and efficiently to say, hey, we have this or, hey, we need this. Do you have it? And I remember sitting there at, in eighth grade going, but but the Internet exists. <laughs> but we have the Internet. How have we not solved this? We have the Internet. So it's a very roundabout way to try to address some health disparities. But 
it's it's become a, a pretty big operation, which is really exciting. It's grown with us. Our team started as 14-year-olds, and now we're 19 to 24. And what's the, um, I guess, what's the scope of, well, first of all, how did, how did it actually become a, a formal organization? How did it go from this, you know, instinct and observation, set of observations that you had to we're going to create a real structure here to connect people to the food? Because one of the things you've done is you've used technology mm-hmm. to make something as common sense sounding as you've described actually easy, easy and accessible for people. I built a really bad <laughs> prototype version when I was in high school. And right after I graduated high school, I met my co-founder, Grant Nelson, who's actually a fellow native Iowan. I met him in D.C., though. He's a coder, self-taught, and he actually built the version of the system that's in use now. It means it's pretty simple. You tell us where you are, what you have, and when you need it gone by. And our system sends automated free email and our text alerts to soup kitchens, homeless shelters, food pantries, churches, mosques, synagogues, people who feed people for free nearby. So we're able to match up excess food and need very quickly. And, and then how do they transfer? Because that was the one simple thing that I couldn't quite figure out was... It depends on where you are. If you are in Philadelphia, you... What if three people respond and, you know, to that... It's first comes, first serve. Okay. It shuts off after one person claims okay. it to make sure you don't spend a lot of time communicating about something you can't ultimately so go someone get. drives over and picks it up. Yes. Or uh, if you're in Philadelphia, one of our partners actually will drive it to you. Philly Food Connect will actually drive it for free, which is amazing. It kind of depends on where you're at around the country, but at this point, we operate in 48 U.S. states in the district. We are waiting on North Dakota and Hawaii. We're coming for you. And we're also about to start working in Puerto Rico as well. I think I think what I'd be interested in, Maria Rose, is uh, how do you define success and how do you get there? In other words, you're in 48 states now, but uh, it's uneven. Some of the states you have, you cover some of the population and some of the geography and some uh, larger, some smaller. How do you, what's the strategy for scaling up and how far are you from your goal? We define success as the culture around food waste changing, about it being the automatic to do what you do with your pastry stores and just get it, sorry, your bakeries. To, it always moves. It's the default mode. The default mode is that you donate it if you have extra or it goes to people in need in some capacity. We actually are going to get there by continuing to do what we do. And believe it or not, that's postcards. We did an enormous amount of what's called A-B testing. A-B testing is a data science term. It's where you compare only one variable being different. So everything about two postcards is the same, except one has a printed label and one is handwritten. Or one is pink and one is blue. But you only change one variable, so you can really see the difference. And we realized that the most effective way to get food pantries to know that we existed was to send them postcards. So we've sent like 10,000 of them over the last two years, but it's an incredibly effective way to get them on the platform because it shows up in their mail and it's handwritten, which is really terrible news for our wrists, but really great news for our platform. Have we thought of that for summer meals? Well, yeah, and it's almost counterintuitive, but that that is a way to get people's people's attention now, right, is to go personal as opposed to digital. Yeah, well, we tested like printing labels versus handwriting them. And I hand wrote like 500 labels, but wow. the, the handwritten ones get a much, much higher response rate. Like it's an arduous task. I went through like an entire season of 30 Rock just copying addresses, but it worked. <laughs> it so, was effective. Uh, so I think of you having achieved what, what, what at Share Strength we would call proof of concept. Yeah. Uh, but still probably a long way to go yes. to penetrate oh, yeah. the whole market. Oh, yeah. We're at 1.65 million, which is... 1.65 million pounds of food. Pounds of food. Okay. We're at 1.65 million pounds of food recovered, which is 
maybe two drops in the bucket. It's not a single drop. It might be two drops. There is so much more that we can do and that we're going to do and that we're excited to do. Excellent. Somebody like Chef David at the Bayou Bakery could just kind of go onto the website and say, we've got, um, you know, six six dozen extra um, croissants and you could get somebody to come and get them. We've done it over and over to the tune of 1.65 million pounds of food in the last two years. That's amazing. Thank you. So how is so DC Central Kitchen yes. here in Washington yes. would be the the difference is this is this is on all on the internet right now. That's yes. the difference. So actually, they would Alex, have to have known to call DC Central Kitchen before, but now yes. they just everyone's driven to look on at, at the website. Yes. So we love DCCK. They are an absolutely phenomenal mm-hmm. model for emergency food for models for leaving poverty they are fantastic their chief development officer alex moore is actually on our board that means we came to him a lot as we were doing the process of becoming a more formal organization we actually sometimes will take food from dc central kitchen when they're given things that they, they can't might have use. leftovers yeah, yeah because it's really common yeah. to see what we call donation dumping where usually with the best of intentions someone will just leave something on the back door mm. of a soup kitchen or a food pantry we had a church in rural new hampshire End up with seventy nine thousand one ounce pizza sauce packets. Seventy nine thousand. Seventy nine. Somebody just 000. left them there. They, they literally, this poor woman running this food pantry couldn't get into the church because the pallets of pizza sauce were blocking the front door. I don't even know where to begin with that. I mean, like, do you you have to open every single one of them and squirt it into something right. to be able to produce anything? What do you so do that? that's, that, I know that's not what you're even talking no, about. That's but okay. So my chef brain was like, thought. oh my god. Right. See that we had the same thought. We had the same thought. We were sitting here like, was there an explosion in a Lunchables factory? Like, what happened? Turns out there had been an inventory mistake at a local retailer. They had just donated it to the food pantry. We ended up moving it to a state food bank that had a proper commercial kitchen Mm. and the training to do exactly that, to actually put it into bigger jars and make it usable beyond the one ounce. So, David, how do you... There are restrictions, too, though, aren't there? I mean, because I know that in my experience with dealing with some shelters and certain, even back in the day with uh, D.C. Central Kitchen, um, you know, there's certain things that they won't come pick up or take in because of, you know, however it was obviously used or exposed or held or... Because, I mean, we're talking about food that's going to be consumed no matter, you know, where down the line in its lifespan. So, you know... I think a lot of sometimes the mentality for operators uh, are, oh, well, you know, we can't do anything with this. Let's just donate it. And there may be a reason why they can't do something mm-hmm. with it. Not that it's maybe a little crunchy or a little stale or a little something, but because, you know, something's turned or it's on its way out or it's a, maybe a couple, two, three, those things probably should go in the trash. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure that in, on your website, and I haven't visited it yet, but I'm sure there's some type of parameters or, yes. you know, because that's such yes. an important thing. You don't want to get people sick, obviously. Right. That's so, an enormous responsibility that sure. we take incredibly seriously because we need to. Right. The Bill Emerson Food Donation Act of 96 gives us, and anybody who works in food rescue, incredible breath. Mm-hmm. This is if, like a Good Samaritan it's law, a good Samaritan right? Law. It says yeah. if you're well-intended and doing the right thing, you're yes. not going to be held liable. Exactly. If you sure. donate to an established 501c3 or house of worship in good faith, you are not liable. Every single recipient on means is a 501c3 or a house of worship that we have verified is, in fact, a house of worship. Oh. Legally, we are where we need to be, but the bar for what is legal and the bar for what is safest for the people we feed are different. Yeah. And we are always aiming for that higher bar. Marie Rose, you know, one of the things that I thought about a lot 
when reading about means was and it's remarkable by the way oh, so congratulations you. On, you. on you know on having the idea and following up on it cuz that's that's great and you were smart enough i think to find a partner who you know we wouldn't be here without right Grant, was or able to the develop whole it team. but you know i was thinking about how what other issues can be served by the same model mm. and have you thought well, about that, that as it relates to the same way. yeah as it relates to poverty and un- the underserved population, or have you thought about that? We have a little bit. We want to stay in food because this is our lane, and we haven't fully occupied the lines yet. Sure. We know we can do what we do better and bigger, so we want to stay there until we completely master this. Yeah, you still have Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and yeah. Exactly, and we we still have plenty of locations in states. Sure. One of the things that we've definitely thought about and looked at is disaster relief. It's really common for again, with the best of intentions, people to just ship things Mm. to a disaster site, regardless of how helpful that is. Usually it's very not helpful. We heard all sorts of stories from our friends in Jersey about people shipping them like prom dresses after Sandy. There was a lot of press around that. And it it was good because obviously it educated a lot of people that you don't just throw things in a box. And I'm sure the intention is great, but don't do storage issues. Then they have to all the labor involved in sorting things out. It's, It's crazy. So here's how we could apply it could Mm -hmm. be helpful if you have somebody in mobile alabama you've got a church that just is doggone determined to send a truckload of water right instead of just driving it to new jersey and showing up and trying to find somewhere and being like they probably need this probably instead they could post to means hey i'm driving to new jersey i have this who needs it Mm. And an organization could actively claim it that actually needs it and can deal with it and wants to deal with it. And is ready to deal with and it. And is ready to deal with it. And then that driver can go exactly and precisely there. Because what we do is real time, mm. that's a new opportunity. So, David, how do you as a chef think about food waste and uh, how do you think about it relative to all of the other really important causes that you're involved in because you're not just a a chef you're kind of a celebrity chef and uh people know you and you have a platform and you have a voice that gets heard um so how do you how do you think of where does it fit in and how do you think about it you must be sensitive to yeah i mean all the food that you see gets wasted i've always heard that the better the chef the better the restaurant the less food waste there is you know for us uh at both restaurants you know we we don't have a a lot of uh waste you know our our baked goods are primarily the, the the items that we you know, we we will have some excess. You know, we have certain pars, which you know are, are numbers. Um, you know, based on um, you know either occupancy or or sort of flow of business, um, whether it be you know Monday through Thursday and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday grouped together, um, is usually how it works for us. Um, so we'll have a certain amount of everything croissants that we bake on a Monday versus a, a Friday, where we may increase those pars. So um, that's that's kind of how we work. You know, we 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 come in every day and. and we may be doing the same thing, but we bake less of something or cook less of something or prepare less of something. And, you know, that's based on obviously, um, you know, being busy, uh, you know, sort of guests coming in. And so we adjust constantly so that we don't have the excess and, and the waste. Um, and just like our inventory and our ordering uh, procedures, we, we order only what we need to get through the next day or two. Uh, having a lot of our vendors uh, delivered to us six days a week, it's easier to do that now than it used to be. Um, so, you know, it's really about dialing in and that's what it, it, it takes a lot of, you know, management 
to be able to sort of put your finger on the on the pulse constantly and get the same clipboard every day and do the same thing and check the mm-hmm. same refrigerator, knowing that it's probably not much different from yesterday, but you know we we, we do that every single day. Um, the only day that we don't do it is Saturday because we don't get deliveries on Sunday. At Bayou Bakery, uh, since the beginning, uh, which has now been seven years, uh, we work closely with Ace Band. They come three times a week and pick up all of our baked goods. And who's this? Ace Band. That's okay. Arlington, um, oh, uh, okay. the shelter. Yeah, oh, so it. they're got right it. on got 14th it. in the courthouse. Right in Ar- for Arlington, Virginia? Yes. Yep, okay, got it. And so um, we've done a lot of work with them and also AFAC, but uh, mainly uh, Ace Band. And there's also a hospice um, a group uh, right across the street from the Arlington Hospital, Virginia Virginia Hospital, formerly known as Arlington Hospital, but uh, off of uh, George Mason, and they'll come about once a week. Um, and what they do is they get a box of pastries like this that we wouldn't necessarily sell because we do them every day, and they provide them uh, to their the, the hospice. Um, so when people are visiting their their family members that are terminally ill, um, that they have some kind of you know item to to offer them. So. You know, and those are groups that have approached us over the years. And so, you know, again, we're talking minimal amounts of food. So it's it's they're staying very local. And, and for me, they're they're organizations that I sort of either chose or they chose us. And so it's been a yeah. great partnership. That's what we want every restaurant or food company in the country to be doing. Right. That's awesome that you have an established relationship that it's working. That's what we want. Sure. That's means it's a little unique in that we don't. We don't want to touch that with a nine and a half foot pole. Sure. It's working for you guys. Great. Right. It would be so great if every chef and everybody who ran a restaurant thought like that about food waste, even when it isn't huge volumes, mm-hmm. because that's really helpful for them. That's money that the shelter doesn't have to spend exactly. on pastries. And that means they can funnel it into their AA programs and funnel it into their mental health programs. Food's really the key that unlocks the door to all of these other social services that help people actually leave poverty. But until we deal with the food, we can't deal with anything else. Ray Rose, I was thinking about the name of your organization, of Mains. 14-year-old me had an acronym. I w- but I was taken with, you know, <laughs> you could have called it just matching excess food to people who need it. But you, you, you know, adding need for stability, I wanted to know where that came from and... Was that your idea? Is that that goes back to your your that, volunteer days? Yes, and... that goes back to my volunteer days. The Pella Community Food Shelf is run by an actual saint of a woman named Melissa. She worked so hard, volunteer, worked probably fifty hours a week. Has seven kids, seven kids, just a total rock star. And we had incredible instability in the amount of food that we had in the food pantry. And it was very, very clear to me, even at eleven and twelve, that this was not a Melissa problem. This was not a management problem. This was a bigger picture problem. We didn't need a new director. We needed a director with new tools. The stability part comes in from the fact that we would be desperately short of item A and totally drowning in item B. Somebody gave us 10,000 boxes of mac and cheese once. There's 10,000 people in my town. Like (laughs) We couldn't get anywhere close to moving all of that. And again, it was donated with the best of intentions. But the stability piece comes in that it's very common for our food pantries, our member pantries, to be in simultaneous feast and famine mode, that they have way too much of one thing that isn't culturally appropriate or people can't use, and not enough of another thing that they really, really need. How, how much of, do you have any sense, I don't mean this in, the, in terms of an exact number, but how much of the hunger problem in the United States could be addressed by food waste? Is it a piece of it? Is it a lot of it? Where does it fit in the scheme of all the things that are, you know, there's uh, there's the 
SNAP food stamp program. Yep. There's school meals. There's yep. emergency food assistance like you've been talking about. Where does food waste fit in the overall universe of what we think of as a very solvable problem? Mathematically speaking, if you just look at this like a calculus problem, food waste can solve all of it. Hunger is not a calculus problem. Hunger is much more complicated than that. If you add up every single emergency food provider in this country, we are 6% of domestic emergency food assistance. Everything else is SNAP and WIC and school meals. So it can't replace government. It can't replace government. It can't replace government. And it, I should at this moment make sure to clarify that I am speaking as Maria Rose, the human person. I am not speaking for the organization. We are a 501c3 and officially do not have any political views. I am just a person whose job has informed her of the way that she thinks about SNAP. And I'm not super great at math, but you can't replace 94% of the supply overnight or even over two decades. And it's not always even a math problem as much as it is, or even a financial problem as much as it is a, a barrier problem. Yep, right? exactly. So exactly. as we've known, you know, we've learned with school breakfast. It's, exactly. There's so many you know, pieces to the it. The food is there, the programs are there, the services are there, but the way for the kids to get the food is not always you know, access, there. Yeah. So that's it's the access piece, which is what, what No Kid Hungry focuses on. In many cases, um, they're getting to the school on time, but they're not getting to the cafeteria necessarily on time when it's still open. So our, you know, very um, uh, our our priority is to get breakfast out of the cafeteria and served in the classroom. So breakfast in the classroom where it's available for all the kids. You know, you see participation rates just soar. Um, so that's that's one of the barriers. Another barrier is just, you know, so transportation getting to the school on time or maybe awareness that there's, you know, breakfast in the cafeteria or the stigma. A lot of kids feel really stigmatized when they have to line up in a certain spot in the cafeteria. So we're really in the business of, you know, eliminating those barriers so that those kids get, get breakfast. David, what other kinds of issues have you been involved in in terms of the community and Philanthropically, I know you get asked to do everything, right? Because everybody thinks of uh, a chef in a restaurant, and it's like we're going to go to them and ask. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I work with Coleco and, and his group with yep. the Chefs Action Food Policy, policy for, action. for SNAP. So mm-hmm. um, we were on the Hill uh, a couple so months Tom ago. Coleco, mm-hmm. talking about, yep, yep, yep. and um, and Andrew Zimmerman and um, and Jose, yep. um, and uh, you know, it's 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 great. Um, you know. Um, we did some work a, a few years back, and it kind of went not went away because it doesn't go away, but it seemed like they kind of reorganized themselves. And so I've kind of started working with them again in the last uh, four or five months. Um, and so I, I was I spent the day on the hill um, a couple months ago when they were they were in town, and um, it was just a great opportunity to, to network. I had two other uh, Michelin star chefs with me, um, and the three of us, you know, went and banged down doors and uh and just you know chewed people's ears uh and um you know just stress the importance of of um uh, protecting this program um and, and on capitol hill you probably get listened to in a different way because you're a chef and because you're a successful business person and for all those reasons and the local aspect helps because these guys live here uh you know they have their own states but you know they live here and they're working here and their aides are working here and and so that that that's a nice uh, piece for me um is i can talk about louisiana and i can you know, go talk to Scalise and Vitter and whoever else I need to talk to and, and Cassidy and and uh, but then I can, you know, go talk to anybody. These are um, all members of the House and Senate you're talking about. Yes, yep, in Louisiana. Yep, yep. And um, and so and I've got great relationships with those guys and, and, and have, you know, prior to, 
you know, just from catering and, you know, we're a very proud state and, uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, we're often doing things with them, uh, to kind of promote Louisiana. You're still so connected <laughs> there, aren't you? Very much so. And I, and that's funny because I kind of, you know, <laughs> self-appointed title. I, you know, I, I look at myself these days as more of like an ambassador to Louisiana through, mm-hmm. through food because people do listen, you know, to, to, to us. Um, and, um, and food is, is this sort of, you know, universal connection that we have we can always break bread and talk about food and 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 attempting to 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 solve you know these these issues you know food and the and the connection to the way chefs have become public figures really the the industry has obviously changed so tremendously i mean can you 20 years is uh, you know isn't it's extraordinary really when you think about We've only talked about a few chefs here, Tom Calicchio and sure. Jose and you and others. But think of what the collective body of chefs have been able to do. Massive. The the issues they've been able to bring to bear, the influence they've had on laws, on policy. It's really an School incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. We did the, you know, when Michelle Obama, you know, sort of invited 300 chefs to the White House lawn a few years back. Uh, we were all there. Um, and we helped bring. We we yeah, I know were, you did. Yeah, we were right there. No, I, we were there I too. Know. It was the, the hottest day on the it planet. Was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was 105 degrees. I had hot. sweat. You know, I was with the first lady. Beautiful inside, sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. Listen to you. Sweat <laughs> dripping down my. I was inside with the first lady. <laughs> oh, it was brutal though. I was so embarrassed. It was like my one chance to look. I'm just good glad we were terrible. in our chef whites and not yeah, our chef uh, blacks or darker colors. We walked up and we saw that line, and there were actually it was closer to 700 chefs. Actually, and there mm. they all were. There you all were in your white toques oh, yeah. and yeah. your white jackets, amazing. and it was not a cloud in the sky. It was, you, there was nowhere to hide. Brutal. To get away from the sun, it was really no trees. Hot. No, no. You know, <laughs> although, Deb, I, do, I agree with what you're saying, but uh, you know about which which uh, about the the way the chefs have evolved as a political force. But I would say that it's still a relatively small number. It seems to me yeah. uh, that are that are mm. active on a consistent basis. So sure. Marie Rose Belding was talking about not being not being able to be political at all. Um, and I would actually argue that you're probably able to be a little bit more political than you think you can be with a with a 501c3 status. At least that's one of the things we've learned at, at Share Our Strength. Um, but a number of chefs have become very political. And I'm guessing, I guess I'm curious about, do you think, um, I know you wouldn't impose your judgments on others. Do you think more of your colleagues need to follow in this path it's it's a delicate for me personally it's i've i've i call myself the bipartisan caterer because i'll i'll feed anybody you know uh you know uh, you know left right doesn't matter to me um you know because because i kind of i i look at it not just financially uh but um you know i i look at it more especially when you know louisiana um either congressmen or, or, or senators will will call and, and i mean they just want gumbo, you know, yeah. and, and I'm going to provide them gumbo. They want to show off, you know, our state. And so, you know, that's a pride thing for me. And so um, I don't I don't go into what they believe and what they represent as much. Um, it's it's tricky. Um, you know, we we uh, we we do Channel 4 at the restaurant, you know, as opposed to Fox or CNN, you know, so it, there's I don't know if there's would say I, I strategize or I just I, I sort of come across fairly neutral. I obviously have my opinions. Um, but your customers I, don't want to be preached to, right? They're coming the there thing. to enjoy a meal. You don't need and, to. But if you're wearing the, your hat with Tom Colicchio on talking to the Hill about certain policies, then you can express yourself yes. very directly and very 
Yes. Right? You don't have to worry about that. If, but with if, your customer, it's different. If if the stage is there for right. that and, and it's that's what we're there for, then I tend to uh, obviously um, – you know, voice a lot stronger. Um, yeah, I don't have signs in my restaurant. I don't make people fill out a form when they're there. I, I, that's not what it's about for me at all. Um, I don't have check presenters that, you know, for certain things. Now, obviously, we promote things that we're doing, uh, but that's very different. Um, you know, uh, maybe we should have more logos on our website that says, you know, what I'm involved in. Um, I think, you know, some people like that. They like to know, you know, what, you know, other than just running two operations, you mm-hmm. know, sort of what, what else I put my name on. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is. I mean, operating, you know, small business these days is is difficult enough. And, and you're right, Billy, we, you know, we, we do get calls. We get calls and emails regularly about, can you come do this? And, and would you mind, you know, you know, doing this? And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, local donations of a gift card for a gala or something, but, you know, bigger things. And it is, it's tricky um, to sort of, you know, how do you divide your time? Marie Rose, I'm wondering how you think about, you're obviously, you know, you're so kind of idealistic and entrepreneurial and you're a problem solver. Um, and it sounds like you're saying from, you were talking about the percentages, 94% of food assistance comes from the government. You know that some of the solutions are political. How do you uh, kind of square the circle of being a nonprofit, which can't be political or too political, with uh, knowing that this, the ultimate solutions have to do with public will and, and policy? For this answer, I'm going to be me. I am going to be Maria Rosebelding, the individual human being. For knowing that at the end of the day, this is about political will. I grew up in an incredibly conservative community. Like Sarah Palin premiered her documentary about herself in our opera house. That's the community this I grew up in. in. This Iowa? is in Pella, Iowa? This is in Pella, Iowa. Your opera house? Wow. Yes, we have an opera house. It was built in like 1884. Wow. It's where our problem That's was. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but the point is, um, I grew up hearing all around me all these things about food stamps enable people. There's so much fraud you can just buy junk. All they do is buy beer, which, you, of course, you cannot do, but did not stop that rumor from going around. I really heard this just incredible disdain for SNAP and more so the people on SNAP. Mm-hmm. The The frustration and the anger towards SNAP really wasn't about food. Hmm. It was about this perception that these these people, and it was always these people, weren't working as hard or at all. That they were not good enough. They had not earned the right to food. Um, There was very much this perception that you had to earn the right to food, that food was not an essential human right, which is something that I believe. But growing up in that environment really taught me effective ways to talk about hunger to an audience that believes something differently than me. But just learning how to talk to people, if, if somebody isn't moved by the situation of a hungry child, you talk about the math of it. You talk about how effective SNAP is at growing an economy. People have money on their SNAP cards when they have food stamps. They can buy food. That means they can buy other things with the money that they were going to have to put toward food. The more money people have in their pockets to spend on things, generally the more spent. And that really, really stimulates the economy because if you don't have SNAP money, All of your funds are going to food, and it's not going to things like school supplies for your kids. It's not going to things like improvements on your house. The money that we, as taxpayers, provide for people on SNAP is really a bridge for greater economic development across the entire community. And you have a lot of, one of the, I think, best pieces of evidence of that is there's a lot of large grocery store chains and other big, kind of big box stores 
that are uh, either quietly or loudly very passionate supporters of the SNAP program mm-hmm. because sometimes as much as 20% of their grocery sales yep. uh, are, are paid for by SNAP, SNAP recipients. And also, as a bonus, WIC inadvertently encourages the provision of healthier food in retailers. SNAP, basically, there aren't a ton of rules. No tobacco, no alcohol, no hot prepared foods, and that's really it. You can buy almost anything else with SNAP. But WIC, which is Women, Infants, and Children, has a much more specific list of the kinds of foods that you have to be able to purchase. So if a retailer wants to be a WIC retailer, they have to have milk and vegetables and lean meats, and they have to have all these really healthy things that you might not find normally in a corner store store bodega. So WIC is this really powerful public health tool, not only for the individuals receiving it, but for the entire community served by that retailer. Well, you know what's fascinating is Feeding America has done a lot of very recent research, and what they have found is that um, if you tell somebody that um, that uh, a, a low-income person in their community is relying on the food bank or the pantry for their food assistance, uh, the person you're talking to will be incredibly sympathetic. If you tell them that they're relying on SNAP for their food assistance, they will be just the opposite. Mm -hmm. So it's the same person, the same food, but where it Mm -hmm. comes from means a lot to people politically. Government or or private, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and as you were saying, learning to talk about it Mm -hmm. to people who maybe come from a different culture or, or don't have that sense of the role policy plays, um, I think is half the battle. Your parents, I'm going back to what you said at the beginning, which was, your, I don't know if you were kidding. Did your parents, they wanted you, well, they, they wanted you to volunteer. They wanted, they wanted you to, to volunteer learn. and they wanted me to succeed. And you were young. I was very young. I was also, so for context, I was a monster. I would like read my mom's parenting books and then quote them back to her when she was trying to discipline me. Wow. So I would be like four and be like, mom, stop being such a helicopter parent. <laughs> like I was... I was like that, and I I didn't have a lot of outlets, and so my parents were always saying to me, God gave you a brain, what are you going to do with it? God gave you a brain, what are you going to do with it? They just kept telling me over and over, hey, you're going to do something that matters, go figure it out. Well, good for them. And we're just going right. to keep parking you in front of stuff until we figure out what it is. Our parents didn't do that, did they, Bill? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, I'm just incredibly sh- blessed. But a shout out to you. I mean, parents say a lot of things. Yeah. It seems you, like you're you doing that. it. So, yeah, it's great. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, I am incredibly lucky. I So my mom is a middle school PE and health teacher, oh, wow. and my dad uh, runs a small toy company. So not a ton of experience in this space, very solidly middle class. Did you have one person or one uh, friend or somebody in your life that really influenced you? So the World Food Prize has this amazing program called the Global Youth Institute where they pull kids from around the world who've written papers on food security around the globe. The winners of that get to apply for something called the Borlaug Rowan Internship, which is an international internship. I have quite a few health problems and it wasn't safe to send me abroad. I was the youngest person by like four years Mm. they'd ever given this fellowship to. And they took a risk on a 17-year-old kid who'd never been on an airplane before to go work for the USDA in Georgia at 17. And that was a really transformative experience for me. I'll bet. So I was 17 years old and I got shipped to Athens, Georgia at the University of Georgia, go dogs, to (laughs) study fumonisin, which is a mycotoxin in wheat. So what that does is it causes something called neural tube defects, like spina bifida in babies, and we see it happen in wheat production, especially along the U.S.-Mexico border. So I got to study the actual science of the consequences of food insecurity and of poor crop management. And I, I spent a summer there, but it was just so 
so motivating for me and moving for me to spend all this time with real adults with real science degrees just saying over and over like oh we're so glad you're here oh this is so cool like let's play with a mass spec like just this this really cool amazing experience of having real adults really invest in me and believe that I could do something of value so when I first had the idea for means I wrote it down in a notebook and I brought it to Melissa who runs the Pella Community Food Shelf. And she bought me my first latte. Bless you. <laughs> Bless her for that. She bought me my first latte, and she was literally sitting in front of a 12-year-old. Like, she had no reason at all to kind of treat me with respect, to treat the idea that I had with respect, to believe that I had anything of value to say. And she did. She sat there and she said, I think that you should do this. I think you can do this. I think this is something that you should do. I think if you do this correctly, this could be really good. She had absolutely no reason to treat me with the level of respect that she did. Like, I couldn't, like, she had to drive me there. <laughs> I couldn't drive. I was, sorry, not 12, I was 14. Um, but just to have somebody that was constantly very supportive those of are, me. Those are turning points, right? That, right, that's, exactly. That's because no point. one else had thought that I could have anything of value to say. And she was the first one to say, this could work, this is good, you should do this. Um, it's a pretty big human thing, problem and human right. solution that you've brought. So it, right. it, it makes sense that you've been able to One work goal. together. One yeah. goal, but many ways to get there. Well, I, I, before coming here today, knowing I was going to see you, I started to dig in a little bit back to um, 2005, right. uh, back to Katrina. Mm -hmm. And I pulled up this one page and it had, I don't know, how many photos and I couldn't stop it was just it brought it all back to me sure and you know after Katrina Sheriff Strength went to New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, immediately right and provided emergency relief in a whole bunch of different ways sure food but also helping with schools and uh, uh, you know art for therapy for the kids who went through traumatic experiences all kinds of things we did mm -hmm. and then we ended up launching our no canary campaign there right. but w I'm wondering and looking at the pictures which were so extraordinary I'm wondering how you could say, well, one is how has the food scene changed sure. since then? But but what what are the sort of the bigger themes that you've seen change in the city? So it's an interesting, um, you know, sort of angle because, you know, I am a native. I grew up there, but I've been, a, you know, not living there and residing there for 20 years. So I have a very interesting perspective on how it has changed. Um, I know that's right. Even more so. I, I think so. Right. And that's not yeah. to pat myself or anything or put any spotlight on me. It's just I do. I, I have a lot of different uh, ways to look at the city um, and, and not living there, um, you know, kind of helps me look at it literally from from the nation's capital. And, you know, I go back a couple times a year um, and um, a lot of the chefs down there are friends of mine. Um, I've kept up with their careers. Uh, I was line cooks with them back in the day, and now they all have their own restaurants. And, and, and um, you know, the food scene is, is very different. Um, I think what I, I love about the city is that there is room for, for a while. And I'll go ahead and, <laughs> even though I know I'll get a lot of criticism for this, you know, I love my city. I love my state. Um, I think that New Orleans rested on its laurels for many years uh, from a food perspective. You know, we became this one thing, this mm -hmm. spicy, heavy, rich, buttery French thing that was just, you know, sinful uh, every single dish. Mm -hmm. And that's not Louisiana cuisine. Mm -hmm. What I love about the city now, and we don't want 
Galatois or Antoine's or Brennan's or anybody to change. They are literally live, you know, institutions that uh, have elevated their ingredients over the years, but haven't necessarily changed things because New Orleanians don't like change. But what we have is we have a, a influx of new chefs, younger chefs that have their own places yeah. that are doing, you know, things that you see in the rest of the country, whether it be on the West Coast in San Francisco or, uh, you know, Northwest in Seattle or, or you know, New York. And so their their mindset is different, but they're still using the abundance of, of, of resources in the state, seafood obviously being number one. So I'm going home and I'm seeing so many cool things mm. done differently now. Mm-hmm. So if I want, you know, the whole Papano with a pound of jumbo lump swimming in Bernays or, or Berblanc, I know where to go to get that. You know, but I, I don't want every single restaurant to do the same thing. And so there's diversity now, and I love it. Um, I love it. You did uh, used to see the same kind. You're right. It is. You know, it's the same food in every restaurant. Sure. Well, very similar. And, you know, yeah, New Orleanians, yeah. you know, they have their place to go for a roast beef po' boy, their place to go for a shrimp, you know, po' boy, an oyster po' boy. And even though each restaurant has all of it, they're very, <laughs> we're, we're an interesting folk, but, uh, but very particular. And, um, you know, for us, it's really more about the hospitality. We don't want things to change because we want to walk in. We want to entertain our out-of-town guests or our friends. And we say, oh, you know, this is our server from, you know, three generations. You go to Galatoire's still to this day, and they've got guys, you know, and gals that are in their 70s that are still waiting tables in tuxedos Incredible. that have seen three generations come in for, you know, Christmas Eve dinner and whatever else. They know everybody, and then they come back from college, and they see them, haven't seen them in years. Every time I go to Galatoire's, it's like this, it's a country club. It's this crazy social, and it's just amazing. And that's, to me, what is so unique about the food scene in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. The last time I was at Galatoire's, they told me, and it seemed like the person I was with, it seemed like it was true. It was like your server was not based on where you sit, but on their relationship with you over the generation. You had the same server you every the same time. Same server every time. So if the anyway. doesn't matter where you sit in the oh, restaurant, yeah. that's your server. It's like a member of your family. So if that's the if crazy. the if the bats or the the Wallaces or the whoever go in or the Dupuis, that they you know it's it's John's their server you know and and there's one Love I that. forgot his name now but he's yeah. from like uh like like Abbeville and he's got this, his still very thick cajun you know vermilion parish accent and he's been living in the city now for you know 40 years but i mean you just do you you become it's this wonderful extended family uh and they make you feel so mm. special mm-hmm. um it and, adds so much to the experience right and you don't look at you don't look at menus i mean it's it's such a carefree totally way to sort experience. of dine yeah. you know you get your Flayed potatoes. You get your fried eggplant. Right. You know, you get your oysters on bruschette. There's just things that we do. There's so much rich tradition. Uh, but then you can't do that every night when you're in town visiting right. for three days, right? Right. Because you'll explode. Well, so I was going to ask you: Is it hard for you not to be there? Just I, I don't mean in terms of the eating, but in terms of the culture. Uh, not to be there, yeah. you know, th- th- and that's the reason I created Bayou Baker. I can walk into my restaurant every day and I can get a muffalata if I'm dying from a muffalata. And, you know, so, yeah, you can't replace the sounds, the smells, the city, the streets, the people. But that's been the only re- one of the main reasons why, uh, you know, we decided you know to stay here is that, you know, now that I have my own place, you know, we were, you know, my wife and I being from New Orleans also, but uh, met here. 
And, you know, we started a family, and our kids, you know, have their own lives. So even though my kids were born at Sibley Hospital, they are the biggest Saints fans on the planet. <laughs> you know, they have two New Orleanians as parents. And so, I mean, you go in our house, and you think it would be, I mean, everything in it is like fleur de and New Orleans this. And, well, that's you know, like our kids, of, not yeah. our kids, because sure. we're brother and sister. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but his... Kids and my daughter. Sure, they think they're all from Pittsburgh. Of course, because we are. Because you're all born here. We are such Pittsburghers. Exactly, and they are too. And that's so important. I think that. I I mean, and we didn't push anything on them. It's just they literally were born into it, and they they've. They, I mean, my youngest Spencer so is. Oh Love my that. God, he is Mr. New Orleans. He loves going to the same place my grandmother took me to get my blue blazer and my shotgun belt. It's called Perlis. It's a little, you know, little hoity-toity sort of uh, clothing store on Magazine. And we were just there for three days uh, prior to Christmas. And he's like, "Are we going to go to Perlis?" I'm like, "For what? What do you need?" He's like, "I don't know. I just, I mean, he just has it." And so I, I introduced him to a guy named Pat who's been there for 40 years, and he. He's, my grandmother brought me there um, and, and wouldn't buy clothes for me or pick things out for me, would say, what do you want? Right. And like, let me try things on and then would just hand Pat her credit card. And so I don't know. I just so I introduced my kids to Pat and he, you know, he swears he remembers me. But, you know, I haven't been in the city for 20 years and right. my grandma hadn't bought me clothes in 30 years. So <laughs> uh, but still, you know, this man is iconic. You know, that that's it's just it really is. And, and that's what I love about the city. So I do see change. I see change for the good um the city looks the same there there's a people came there after katrina and stayed there and that's the new new orleans Mm -hmm. and uh, you know some locals will tell you you know it's different and and they don't like it and they're like you know this these people and uh, yeah but what what what, look at all the restaurants are open they're busy yeah there's growth you know people it, it just new orleans needed to change Right. A little bit couldn't keep doing the and way it needed it, to come back. Yes, you know? and it's so. there is a wonderful, um, you know, sort of there's a piece of gold, I guess, you know, through all this, you know, cr- uh, turmoil and, and mm-hmm. chaotic times and disaster, uh, you know. So if there was a gem that came out of it, it's it's you know that the city is sort of thriving, yeah. and yeah. I don't know, it's it's just fun to be. It was fun to be home. I hadn't been home in actually a year and a half. And spent three days there, and it was it was just great. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like just... the next time we organize, uh, uh, we take delegations of community leaders to lots of different communities. And New Orleans is a place we've gone back to repeatedly. But the next time we go, we we got to sync it up with when you're oh, there. Yeah. That'd be the way to travel. Oh my god, we have to. Uh, okay, our our time is running out on us, but I want to <laughs> ask each of you um, what's next. Both both because I know. Um, our listeners will be interested in because I personally would like to invest in whatever either of you do next. I think you're both, you know, incredible, um, each in your own way. So tell us, um, you, you've got to graduate college, right? That's coming up. Yeah, I That's get to big. do I get to do pre med physics and pre med chem next semester. It's going to be great. I'm not doc? at all concerned. Are you going to be a doctor? <laughs> yeah. You are going to be a doc. I am. Yeah. The best person to start an organization and the best person to lead it in years five through 10 are usually not the same person. That's true for means as well. I am here for the next three years and I am running this ship and I am keeping us away from the icebergs. I will leave the company as executive director the day I start medical school. Y'all can't see it, but I'm crossing my fingers because I have to get in first. Yeah, I have a feeling you will. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you do. Yeah. But the point is... We have, there is a whole succession plan. There are fantastic, we have five part-time employees starting actually January 15. 
we have this amazing, amazing crew of young people that have grown with the company. We were all teenagers, essentially, when we started. I'm now 22. Um, our deputy director is 20. We are all kind of coming into our own. And if we've, we've managed to do everything that we've done on less than $80,000 a year. Well, while that's, in, that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing. While in full class loads. So wait, what, what's the staff size? There are five part-time part employees starting January 15. Right now we have three. And we also run on a couple of different really incredible part-time volunteers who are doing this while they're also in full credit loads. And the best way for folks to find out more about it is straight to the website? Yep, Means... you can check us out at www.meansdatabase.org. Meansdatabase.org. Yes, and you can read all about what we do. David, quickly, what's next for you professionally? You just opened a place, right, uh, at a at The a new Darcy there. Hotel, yep, at 1515 Rhode Island. It's called Lil B. Um, we've been open about four months now. Um, you know, I'm working on um, product line. Yep. So, um, so we've mm. hired a, a local marketing uh, company called... Uh, Mission to Market, um, and who actually was a regular guest of ours at Bayou Bakery and still is, uh, Jackie and her partner Daniel, and uh, so we're we're developing a, a line of uh, a caramel corn and d- different product line. Oh, for, exciting! What's the timing? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Okay. And book number three is one of those things that I'm still working on. It's to tell my family story uh, of Cuba. Maria Rose Building, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Really a pleasure to have you. Um, great David, meeting you. Yeah, Chef, great to meet you too. Chef David Gauss, thanks. And thanks for all your support for Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign over the years. You bet. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore, here with my sister Debbie Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening to this special millennial edition of Add Passion and Stir, brought to you by the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. I'm Chandra Jenkins. Fueled by consistent access to nutritious food, children who learn, play, and thrive are more likely to achieve the education, health, and employment necessary for a stable future. And that means they're less likely to experience hunger in the future. Yet today, over 42 million Americans, 13 million of them children, go hungry every year in the United States. That's one reason why Sodexo, the world leader in quality of life services, created the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. Together, we mobilize experts, innovators, volunteers, and donors to feed children in the United States today, and we advocate for policies that ensure no child is hungry again tomorrow. We believe today's youth can be the generation to end hunger, so we're investing in young people to help them start and grow innovative solutions. Please visit HelpStopHunger.org to learn about ways we support youth leaders. And while you're at HelpStopHunger.org, check out the Alliance to End Hunger's Youth Opportunity Resource Inventory, a one-stop shop for young people seeking ways to join the fight against hunger. Thank you. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.